Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Clitt, and as you probably know by now, I'm here in Oxford, together but apart from my co-host, Octavia Bright, who is meeting me in cyberspace from London Town. Hi, Octavia. How are you doing? Hi, Carrie. Um, I'm good. I'm psyched to be in level two. (laughs) Tier two even. Yeah, I'm all right. I'm annoyed. I was really looking forward to doing a bunch of stuff next week that I'm now not going to be able to do. But today I am going to go and do a very safe socially distance outside waving at my friend's new baby, which is exciting. I'm going to wrap up warm. (laughs) It's a long walk. (laughs) Yeah, I'm okay. I'm tired of it, but I'm okay. How about you? Yeah. Well, we're not in tier two here, but I feel like we're just waiting for it to happen. And also I have not been doing any fun things because I've just been through the digital Frankfurt book fair for work. Hey. Yes. <laughs> Which was both pretty exhausting but surprisingly lovely uh in many ways. It was such a comfort to see so many publishers from all over the world on Zoom and sort of their see their cats and their bookshelves and that we were all going through this all over the world. It's it was immensely comforting in some ways, but I did I missed the dinners, I missed the spontaneous meetings, I missed not having to do a whole week of regular work alongside all of these meetings. I even missed the schnitzel and the overpriced beers. <laughs> you should have I made mean, yourself was... a schnitzel and yeah. bought yourself a fancy beer. I really should have done that, but I didn't. So uh, oh, next time. Next time. Well, it's got, hopefully <laughs> next time you'll be back in the in the big hall, no? Yeah. Yeah. I really hope so. But now I'm like trying to desperately do some social things before it's impossible. So Girl, yeah, this week right. is your week. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Inject it into your veins. Trust me. <laughs> Yeah, but it's so exhausting, isn't it, to do social things. I had dinner with friends the other night, and I was like, by 10 o'clock, I was a zombie. We had some friends over last night for our, like, last aloud, just a a couple of people. And, um, you know, I smoked a couple of Rollies. I stayed up till midnight, and uh, you can probably hear it in my voice this morning. I sound (laughs) like I've been out all night. This is the state of the world. Yeah. Anyway. we soldier on. We do. And... Shall I tell you what the theme of our I mean, show please is do today? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is sisters. That's right. In February 2019, when we interviewed Claire Adam, we dedicated a show to the theme of brothers. So it only felt right to balance the books. Today, we'll be talking about all those memorable sisters that have populated the pages of literature, from Little Women to My Sister, the Serial Killer, and exploring why this familial bond is so potent in storytelling. With the days drawing in and Halloween nearly upon us, we'll also be thinking about the ways that sisters have been used to unsettling and uncanny ends in fiction. And we couldn't have a better author here today to help us explore the spookiness of sisters. We'll be talking to Daisy Johnson, whose new novel, helpfully called Sisters, is about two almost disturbingly close siblings and what happens when they move with their mother to a crumbling house on the seaside after they cause a terrible incident at their school. Octavia, can you introduce Daisy? I sure can. Daisy Johnson's debut short story collection, Fen, was published to widespread critical acclaim in 2016. In 2018, she became the youngest author ever to be shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize with her excellent first novel, Everything Under. She currently lives in Oxford by the river. It's a nice river I can attest. (laughs) (laughs) So today you'll hear our interview with Daisy. We'll talk more generally about sisters in literature, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And finally, we'll give our usual book recommendations. So stay with us. 
sisterhood forever. <laughs> <laughs> I improv that. You did, didn't you? Daisy Johnson, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be here. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up for us? Yeah, so I'm just going to read from the beginning of the book, so it should be self-explanatory. My sister is a black hole. My sister is a tornado. My sister is the end of the line. My sister is the locked door. My sister is a shot in the dark. My sister is waiting for me. My sister is a falling tree. My sister is a bricked up window. My sister is a wishbone. My sister is the night train. My sister is the last packet of crisps. My sister is a long lion. My sister is a forest on fire. My sister is a sinking ship. My sister is the last house on the street. A house. Slices of it through the hedge, across the fields. Dirty white, windows sunk into the brick. Hand in hand in the back seat, the arrow of light from the sunroof. Two of us, shoulder to shoulder, sharing air. A long way to come, up the bone of the country, skimming the Birmingham Ring Road, past Nottingham, Sheffield and Leeds, breaching the Pennines. This the year we are haunted. What? This the year as any other in which we are friendless, necessary only to ourselves. This the year we waited in the rain by the old tennis court for them to arrive. Sounds on the radio. Higher temperatures are coming from the south. Police in Whitby. The shush, shush, shush of mum's hands on the wheel. Our thoughts like swallows. Front of the car rising and falling like a bow. There is sea out there somewhere pulling the duvet over our heads. This the year, something else is the terror. The road edging away and then dropping from sight. The judder, judder, judder as we move from tarmac to dirt. Is mum crying? I don't know. Should we ask? No answer to that, and anyway, the house is there now. And no time to go back, or try again, or do things over. This the year we are houses, lights on in every window, doors that won't quite shut. When one of us speaks, we both feel the words moving on our tongues. When one of us eats, we both feel the food slipping down our gullets. It would have surprised neither of us to have found, slit open that we shared organs, that one's lungs breathed for the both, that a single heart beat a doubling, feverish pulse. Thank you, Daisy. That was fabulous. It's such an atmospheric opening. It really gave me some goosebumps. Um, But that that section that you read, it starts with a list that's almost a poem. And I wondered, at what point in your process did you write that section? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think I wrote it quite near the end. Um, And I think I find both as a reader and a writer that I quite like opening a book and there being I suppose a sort of mark of intent and I really wanted to put that in the beginning of this book a sort of um, I guess a sign of what the book might be about or a sort of I guess in this case a little bit of a warning Um, and I wanted something quite stark at the beginning I think but I definitely um, wrote it late in the process. 
I love the idea of you writing that list of the different things that my sister is. Was it a much longer list? Did it kind of flow out of you? Was it something you had to brainstorm a lot? I think it came out pretty much as it was, which is very unusual to me. I spend a lot of time writing and then deleting a lot and then writing again. Um, But I think by that point, I knew the sisters really well and I knew what they meant to each other. And I knew the sort of things that July might say about her sister. And I suppose there are also in that list little hidden things. Um, You know, there are things in that list which are about my family or which I wanted to put in as little notes to myself. Um, So I think I knew what it was going to be when I sat down to write it. It's also that wonderful thing that happens when you read something fresh and then you finish a book and then you go back and read it again and you have all this extra insight, which as a reader just feels like a lovely medal. But why did you want to write about sisters? And was there anything that you found particularly challenging about it or anything that surprised you? The sisters, writing about the sisters came a little later, I think. The sort of seed for the novel was wanting to write about a haunted house, I think, and wanting to see if I could explore that kind of horror fiction and ghost fiction. And I've always been really fascinated by the age that the two sisters are. They're sort of uh, 15, 16. And I think there's something quite... I suppose unsettling and frightening about that age, particularly for these two sisters, because though they are that age, they are also, they act quite young. They're quite young for the age they are. And I think I was really interested in who we are when we're teenagers, when we're not really children anymore, but we're not quite adults and we're going through all these big changes in our bodies and a lot of new experiences are happening to us. And I think I was thinking about very close family relationships. I've always loved writing about relationships like that. And I think there is something about sisters, which is a really fruitful place to explore. There's so much there, isn't there, about identity and reflection and power. I mean, it really is so much of it is about power for me anyway, when I read it. Would you agree with that, that that it's a book about power? Yeah, and I definitely wanted the reader, as they were reading it, to be uncertain where the power lies and be at times uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, July is, as we heard a little in the readings, she's our sort of eyes for the book. And she's not really sure about the power relationships um, and her idea of it changes. But I did want to write about a relationship which is very close and in some ways very loving, but is also very uneven and at times quite frightening. Yeah, and that's incredibly unsettling. And you talk about July as the eyes for the book but to me it really felt like September her older sister is in many ways the kind of gravitational center of this novel um she has immense power over her sister and immense power over her mother really and she's capable of great love as you say but also great cruelty and she's just such an incredibly memorable character I felt seduced and terrified by September so I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that character came to you and how you how you wanted her to be and how you kind of shaped that in your writing process. Yeah, thank you. I'm really um, glad you said she was like a gravitational force because I've always really loved having characters at the center of books who are who are often absent in some ways. We don't, you know, we hear from quite a few of the characters in in the book. We hear from the mother at times, but we never actually hear from September. And I'm really interested in these characters at the center of some books who are um, in some ways an absence, a sort of cave behind the book. And we see them sort of in fragments and flashes, but we're never quite certain about them. And for a time, the book was in part actually from September's point of view, 
but it became clear I think that she she needed to be this mysterious character that we are never quite certain about and we only really see through July and we sometimes see her at angles and I do think that those characters are often the best to write I really enjoyed writing her and trying to find the edges of her and sort of seeing where I could where I could push her as a character and how much the reader would sort of follow me. Do you feel like that freedom comes from the fact that you don't have to be compromised by actually kind of rooting her in reality, even in the reality of the book in a way? Yeah, potentially. And I think that's sort of the wonderful freedom of beginning writing a book or beginning reading a book and realising that the the edges of the book aren't necessarily real. Um, and I really love books where there are aspects of magical realism or mass aspects of horror um, or the supernatural and you're never quite sure if it's in our world or if it's in a world a little like our world. And I think it was also deciding to set the book somewhere really isolated and sort of locking the characters in this small cottage in Yorkshire enabled it to become a sort of microcosm where we weren't really sure about the rules of the world they were living in. To follow on from that, I've been wanting to ask you about The Settle House, which, you know, hearing you say that initially this book was about a haunted house and that kind of is the that's the location where so much of it takes place and I've always found in your writing um, you evoke place so strongly and powerfully and this house this is where September and July's father is born and the family spend time there and it's described in that in terms that make it sound like a living creature actually it really made me think of uh, horror movies from the 70s have you seen this one called the Amityville Horror where the house comes alive and basically eats its inhabitants oh wow very, very scary there's the scene where the stairs start to bleed and it's unbelievable which obviously is not what happens in Sisters but um, I would love to know more about where the Settle House appeared for you like is it based on somewhere you've been or is it something completely from your imagination? Hmm. Um, I think I've seen a very bad version modern version of the Amateurville Horror so I'll have to find the original that oh my good. god amazing no the original is <laughs> excellent and definitely not one to be watched with the lights turned out I can tell yeah. you that for sure <laughs> um, yeah I love writing places and I really increasingly love writing houses I think there's something there's something about the way uh, that we and our bodies sort of interact with the places that we live which is really interesting, you know, and we, we sort of create these safe havens or places that we think are safe havens, but are never really safe, I think, um, you know, always slightly tenuous. And I really wanted the house to be a character in its own right and to to kind of respond to what's happening to the sisters and uh, to be a very strange, uncanny place where the, the inside of the house is sometimes on the outside and the outside is often intruding in kind of very animalistic ways into the house. And it was based originally um, on a cottage that my partner and I stayed in in Wales in North Wales where we go quite a lot and I had some of the worst night terrors I've ever had in this house Um, the sort of sleep paralysis where you find yourself pinned to the bed and it was a really lovely house but I think I began thinking then about what do you do when the place where you you know you come to to be secure and to be away from the wind and the rain what do you do if that place sort of turns against you and has its own personality which I very much think that houses do. I have to tell you Daisy I actually had really terrifying nightmares after I stayed up (laughs) late to read the book and I had all these horrible nightmares and I couldn't figure out why and then I was like oh my god and then I could see how the book worked its way into my um 
subconscious. And I did want to, you mentioned horror earlier. I did want to ask you about that genre and your kind of relationship to the genre of horror, because it, it does feel like you are really engaging with that in this book. And was that deliberate? Is, is horror something that you are excited by or, or read a lot of? Mm. I'm sorry to say it makes me really happy when people say the book really scared them. So I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> it really scared me. Into your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it did scare me while I was writing it, I think. It sat, sat at my desk, sort of my partner works in the shed at the house. So I was on my own for a lot of the day working on it and definitely felt my sort of shoulders tingling. So I'm very happy about that. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I really loved horror for a, a long time. I, w- I was born on Halloween. So I think from a young age, my partner, my parents did these sort of amazing themed birthdays. And I was, you know, watching um, The Exorcist and The Shining when I was far too young to do so. And then as I got older, sort of began to read people like Shirley Jackson and Helena Yemi, who really, I think, do so well, at particularly the Haunted House novel and creating this very frightening space and um, populating it with, you know, quite troubled characters. And I've always, I think, since I realised quite a long time ago that I wanted to be a writer, I've always wanted to see if I could do something with the horror genre, I suppose, a sort of love story to it. And I think it will always infect the things I write in different ways. I think there's often a monster in everything I write, but this was a more, I think, straightforward, yeah, homage to that genre that I really grew up reading and I suppose really taught me how to put together stories. You mentioned Shirley Jackson. I couldn't help but think of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, mm. which is a very different story than this one, but about two sisters in a in an old haunted house. And I wonder what your relationship with that story is. And And maybe we could come back to sisters because there does seem to be something very not only interesting and exciting narratively about sisters. And I should say our theme for the show today is sisters, which is maybe why I'm I'm latching onto it. But something kind of creepy and uncanny that you can do with sisters with with two people who are biologically related in that way. And especially these sisters who are so close, who kind of merge into one another. Mm. Yeah, I think there's so much there's so much to do with sisters. And I think it's, yeah, as I said, such a wonderful place for a writer to explore. And I think I have a very good relationship with my younger sister, but there is something very intense about a relationship where, you know, you grow up knowing that person from the moment they're born and you see them change and you see them adapt and you often get on, but you often don't. We had very sort of physical fights when I was younger, my sister and I. And I think We've Always Lived in the Castle does so well at the the sort of, I think, strange games that sisters play where you test one another's boundaries and um, you sort of push and pull one another and you see how far you can you can take things. And I think that is something that in some sister relationships continues even when you're older and can often, I think, from the outside, look quite unnerving. Yeah, I mean, there's something about that that also makes it feel like it's in the space of allegory almost which I think the names do as well and I I, the minute I started reading it I wanted to ask you about why you chose to give them the names that they have name name them after months because they're also not the only characters who populate the book who have those names I remember there's a I think is is it a pop star called January who the sisters Mm -hmm. really admire but then there are obviously lots of other characters that breeze in and out whose names are nothing to do with the calendar months. Um, and I was just curious about that device. 
Yeah, I think it probably is wanting the book to feel a little fairy tale like and um yeah, as we've as we've talked about a little like the world maybe isn't quite our world. And I think also one of the first things that um when I first started writing about September and July and realizing that I wanted them to be the characters, I really wanted them to be very close in age, sort of I guess uncomfortably close in age. I think you know there's 10 months between them. Um and to be and for this to sort of this closeness to be reflected in the fact that their mother has a very bad relationship with their father and that their them being born close together isn't necessarily a very good thing and i think that's something which was quite important in their relationship that though they're not twins they are close enough that they're in the same school year um and close enough that the the age similarity is something their mum uh, worries about i think Right, and that sets them apart from the more like standard sibling age gap. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, it, I love to hear you describe them as kind of fairy tale because they. I found with your other, your first novel, Everything Under, as well, um, made me think of folk tales and the Grimm's fairy tales a little bit, and almost fable as well. And the language that you use in both novels and just in your style is very organic and very embodied. Like uh, I, one thing that really stood out to me in Sisters was a description of a character whose skin turns to marshland, which conjured up all kinds of amazing swampy images. But the two books, to me as a reader, feel related. And I wondered if it was just because of the consistency of style or if you think about how the two books relate to one another, do you see them as connected? Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking about that today. Um, I'm sort of working on my next book and trying to think of ideas for other things I might want to write and sort of thinking how interesting it is to read writers, read the different works of writers in an order and how I think that often a book just isn't enough space to explore something you're interested in. And I think certainly Everything Under and Sisters, I think I really was still thinking about a lot of the same things um thinking about sort of I guess mythic structures and also families and what families can do to one another and certainly also I think how the landscape relates to characters and sort of impedes upon stories so I think they I think they are related yeah I wanted to ask you a little bit more about you've been talking about mythic structures and something that looks like our world but isn't quite our world and that was something I found so impressive about this book that it managed to both be situated in our own worlds but feel kind of out of it and I wonder if if you do think about that when you're writing like how how do you ground something while still making it mythical Um, because it seems like a it's a difficult balance I mean there's a reason why there's so much bad magical realism I think it's because it's so hard to balance those two things in a way that doesn't take you out of the story in either direction. Mm. Yeah, I think um, you're right. And I think it is something I thought about a lot. And also something my, it's one of the first things my editor always asks me when she reads one of my books. And I think it's probably because as you're saying, there are a lot of books which don't succeed. And I think it's, it's about deciding, I suppose, what world it's set in. And also I've always, I think, and this is something which I tried to do and everything under as well, and I hope succeeds. I've tried to, put the characters into places which are very isolated or which have their own sort of rule system so that strange things happen there but you almost as a character who isn't in the place that they are you could almost believe that those things are happening and though they aren't our world I do want the do want the readers to feel 
like if they went to a canal boat on the river or if they went to this small house in Yorkshire, they would also see these things happening. That's a nice way to put it. I also wanted to ask you about writing about women because, you know, in this book, it's we really just have this small group of women interacting with each other. And, and that's something that seems to reoccur throughout your fiction. I mean, do you set out to write stories about women? What what interests you about how women interact with each other and, you know, especially mother and daughter relationships in relation to sibling relationships? Yeah, I think I'm obsessed with writing about women and exploring sort of what it means to be a woman in, in all the different sort of meanings of that word. And sometimes people ask me, when are you going to write about men? And I don't feel quite yet that I've explored everything I want to explore about women characters and certainly about women characters relating to one another and the things that women do to one another. So it's almost, I think, accidental that the books are populated by women. But that is what I'm thinking about when I sit down and start writing notes. I am thinking about, um, yeah, certainly mothers and daughters and the sort of the boundaries of those roles and how a lot of people can't fit inside those roles and, um, yeah, what that does to women. And the expectations, right, which are just so kind of complex and um, it's a territory that's never going to get old because we're never going to escape patriarchy. So it's a question we're always going to need to keep answering, I think, you know. Um, yeah. But what I loved in this was that you explored the way in, in Sheila, the, the girl's mother, um, the way that a mother can end up feeling shut out of her children's world. Um, because I feel like the story of children often feeling like they're missing out is something that we come across all the time. But it was so interesting to flip this around and see the other way that, you know, in a group of three, often one is left out and what that does to a dynamic when it's the parent. Um, and I wondered why you wanted to explore that. Yeah, I think it's what you're talking about. It's about wanting to write about women who are mothers but who aren't necessarily naturally maternal um, in the way that society expects them to be and you know really find it difficult to bring together the the woman that they were before they had children with the mother who they then are afterwards and I think society makes it very difficult for those two things to become one and I really wanted there are some sections in the book from Sheila and I really wanted those to be there so that we we sort of see how on the outside she is from the children and how how difficult that is and how frightened that makes her. And for that to be used as another way to sort of see the power um, imbalances in September and July's relationship that really that they don't have anyone else, even their mother. I loved reading those sections from from Sheila against the the sections narrated from July, partially because I think you really convincingly made Sheila an older woman and July a you know a, a teenager and I wonder could you talk a little bit about finding those voices and what kind of language you wanted to use for them and and how you maintained that kind of consistency and, and differentiation as well yeah thank you I'm really glad they worked I I think I wasn't always going to have Sheila in there but I wanted her to be there partly as a sort of a little breath from the book um, because most of the book is set in that small cottage and is sort of about the sisters not doing very much you know they spend a lot of time watching television and having baths and I wanted the Sheila sections to lift us away from that for a moment but I'm glad that they read very differently and I think they felt very different writing them the July sections um, there was a lot of 
writing a lot of words and then deleting a lot of words and then taking a little bit from before and then writing it all again and that's the normal way I work and with the Sheila sections it felt like less of that I think by the time I came to her I actually knew I knew what her voice was but I really wanted the language in the book and at times the way it's laid out on the page or the kind of use of space to reflect each character so that you you did almost feel like the characters are sort of telling you the story sat across the table from you or that you're reading something they've written down I wanted the language to feel like it was imbued with them I wanted to ask you about the length of this book because it's it's pretty short um and it's very pacey you know it's it's the kind of thing I I think I read it in two sittings just about um and as I said stayed up very late reading it and then suffered the consequences of that but um (laughs) but I I wonder if that was that always what you wanted did you want it to make something did you want to make it something short and propulsive and how do you think about that when you're when you're editing your own writing I wanted it to be longer. I don't know why. I sort of got it into my head that it was actually <laughs> going to be quite a long book. And I kept adding bits in and then and then getting to the point of sending it to someone and then having to take all those bits out and it being quite short. Um, and actually, in the sort of late drafts, I began to realise that it was a short book and that it had to be a short book. Um, I suppose because it's so intense, but also I think because it's a book with a lot of things sort of buried inside it and hidden inside it. So I think it has to be short because it needs to hold the reader's attention. And, you know, it sort of needs to play the trick on the reader that it's trying to play um, and let them come to the buried things as they come to it. And I think it just wouldn't have worked as a longer book. I think also there's so many brilliant short books around the kind of, yeah, the past 10 years, Max Porter and Megan Hunter, just to name a couple. And I think I love that experience of, as you said, reading a book in one or two sittings and and then because it's short, being able to go back to it and explore it differently. And I think I wanted by the end, although I fought against it, I think I was really interested to see if I could do something like that, because I think short books are, are quite difficult. I think um, there's very little space for sort of flab. Yeah, there's nowhere yeah. to hide. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel like you had to cut out a lot of flab? Yeah, but I always do because I'm a very messy drafter. So I I draft a lot, a lot of drafts and then and then delete them. And, and mostly it's because the idea I have in my head is never quite clear enough. And I'm always impatient to begin and I begin too soon. And so the idea has to change. Um, and that's sort of part of the process, I think. And I think it, within that process, finding the right language to tell the story Um so I think it's, yeah, I think it's always important to cut out flab. I think if you're not cutting out flab, then you're maybe not being <laughs> not being cruel enough to the draft, perhaps. <laughs> I'm imagining you in some kind of like mad surgical outfit with a scalpel. <laughs> yeah, it sometimes feels a little bit that way. <laughs> I like it now, but certainly when I first began to discover the way I was writing, it really frightened me, this sort of hacking away thousands and thousands of words. I think it's so interesting that you describe it as cruelty especially in the context of this book, which is a lot about cruelty. And the characters are very cruel to each other. Yeah, yeah, they are very cruel to each other. Um, And I think at times perhaps there's a cruelty to the reader and and that they know as little as the characters know. Yeah. Yeah, so you love cruelty. (laughs) 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 Daisy Johnson, cruel mistress. Daisy, do you have a favorite pair of sisters in literature or a group of sisters? That's a good question. 
I suppose I do. I really do love Shirley Jackson sisters. But then sort of talking about sisters, I've been thinking of and I, they're not actual sisters, but they're sort of sisters in the way we were talking about earlier. But Karen Russell has this story called. Oh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's about um, it's about all these girls who are brought up as wolves and then they are all taken to this nunnery to sort of be made into proper girls. And they're sort of this pack in a way that I think sisters often can be. And I think it's a really good illustration of, um, yeah, of sort of sisterhood and of that age as well. And Daisy, I just wanted to ask you as a last question, do you know what you're writing next? Yeah, so I'm currently in the um, slightly anguished place of waiting for my edits for my next book, which is early stages, but a novel, again, about family, but also I think about art and exploring. I became really interested, especially in lockdown, sort of reading different books and in the kind of autofiction that surrounds a lot at the moment. So Rachel Cusk and Nausgaard, and it's sort of exploring what it means to write about yourself and the sort of um, dangers and boundaries of that. But it's very early and it might change a lot. So don't hold me to that. <laughs> <laughs> we won't. I love that idea of like auto, auto fiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daisy, it's been so fun to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming on. If anyone is looking for a, a book that is both rewarding but cruel in all of the best ways, <laughs> really recommend Sisters. Yeah, give it to everyone in the Halloween Halloween stockings? Well, I'm getting my holidays confused. <laughs> I wish there were Halloween stockings. That would be so good. <laughs> okay, well, from now on, that's it's a new thing. It's called the Halloween stocking. And it should have a copy of Sisters in it without a shadow of a doubt. Thanks so much for having me. It was so good to talk to you both. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about our theme today, which is sisters. When we thought about brothers for our show with Claire Adam, we got into the way that siblings are, if you have them, people with whom you have a lifelong bond that is not yours by choice. Best case scenario, you have a friend for life bonded by shared history. Worst case scenario, you have an inescapable lifelong rivalry, or as the writer Elisa Albert puts it, blood peers from whom we can't ever quite escape. It's a good little uh line there isn't yeah. it i mean sisters or siblings in general are such a personal thing so i think we should start by just talking about how we think about sisters and and what our relationship is to that idea what do you think octavia i mean my relationship to sisters is just nuns or nuns on the run <laughs> basically whoopi goldberg and sister Act, that's where i go no i'm being facetious none of the women i think of as sisters are blood relations but they are without doubt my chosen family. And I've known a couple of them almost all my life. Some of the others I've picked up along the way. And we're very entwined in one another's families. We know each other's parents. We're each other's emergency contacts. We understand the role we play in each other's lives is long-term reciprocal. And I think crucially like elastic and full of a lot of forgiveness, but there's a a long-term commitment that we've all made to one another, basically. And I think ultimately, because the bond is elective, it does mean that we don't take each other for granted the way that blood relatives can. And obviously the relationships need a bit more conscious maintenance because you you don't just like bank on the fact that you'll see each other at family gatherings or um, you have to negotiate, I think, a little bit more than you do with blood relatives. But yeah, for me, that's my closest experience of sisterhood, uh, my half-sister, who I am related to by blood, 
is almost 20 years older than me and we never grew up together obviously and our relationship is much more like that of cousins so what I experienced with her is very nice but it's definitely not something I would approximate with sisterhood and because I was therefore kind of brought up as an only child I actually had endless fantasies about having a sister really close in age because obviously for an only child you see all these kids in twos and threes having like a very stimulated fun time and you you have feelings about it but I think the really positively powerful thing about being an only child is you have to learn how to form intense and strong bonds with others kind of for survival and I actually have a lot more sisters as a result than it would be feasible for me to have had biologically. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts, but I think there's something about this bounty of intimacies that means that the load gets spread a lot wider and it puts less pressure on individual relationships. And I think that we have less expectations of one another and therefore there's kind of also slightly less scope for rupture sometimes. And I think it's fair to say that most, definitely not all, but most of my chosen sisters and I grew up in a certain amount of like loving dysfunction. So our bonds are definitely forged <laughs> by that shared experience, even though our families are not the same family, if that makes sense. Um, but I know it's a really different situation for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is really different. And it's so fascinating to to hear you talk about that because well, listeners of the show know I have one younger sister named Sophie, who I'm incredibly close with. She also listens to the show. Hi, Sophie. I hey, love you. Sophie. <laughs> and, you know, we had our, as everyone does, up, ups and downs as siblings. We're two and a half years apart. You know, there were times when when we were further apart from each other and, and times when we were closer. But we spent so much time together as kids. We're incredibly close friends right now. And I really have always felt an immense safety in knowing that we can be our absolute true selves with each other and and take each other for who we are, no matter how we are in a particular moment. And it's so interesting for me to hear about your chosen sisters, partially because I can see how somebody could take that for granted, you know, like having to renew a, a, a sisterhood not built on blood ties constantly, as you say, I think can be a good thing sometimes, but also... I have so many wonderful friends who are women, um, which is, it's not to say that I don't, but maybe I haven't sought out bonds like the ones you've described because I, I've just always felt that I have that with Sophie. You know, I, I never have to find someone who could be my emergency contact because Sophie is my emergency contact. And, and maybe it's a little sad that I don't have that. I'm not sure. I don't know. It's just different ways of of finding intimacy in your life, isn't it? And actually I have uh, quite a few friends who have a biological sister very close in age. And I would say that they they have a similar experience to you. They have close intimacies with other women, but that they never actually have to reach that next stage. Mm. And I think that they also share a slight ambivalence about that. But it's not it's not that you miss out on something, it's just you have a different experience of it, you know? Yeah. And I, I do also see, I just feel very lucky that we're so close. I mean, we did, Sophie claims I'm very competitive with her. So we, oh, I mean, it's, oh, not, it's oh. not like everything's happy. <laughs> All the time. You, competitive. I just don't recognize I know, shocking. Very shocking. I, but for some reason, when she told me that, I was like, no, I'm never competitive with you. And she was Amazing. like, Carrie, that's crazy. But anyway, I, I accept that. But I do see how the inverted version of this can be hell. 
you know, somebody who knows you so well, somebody who knows everything about you and and can exploit that to really terrible ends. And so I can see how that's incredibly fertile ground for fiction that, you know, someone who is so intimately acquainted with who you are. Yeah. And, and from your childhood, too, when you're still forming as a person, really. Yeah, yeah. Also, I, you know, the stories and, and encounters with people who have been terribly let down within the family by their sisters, mm. who refuse to participate in the family dynamic or pull their weight, you know? Yeah. And also, I should just say, I love reading books about sisters because they are such a great prism for thinking about these things, for mm. thinking about families and friendships, but also women's relationships with each other, which is endlessly fascinating to me. So I guess I'd love to ask you what you think it is about sisters in particular that is so evocative in fiction. It was interesting because we, as we said, we did the show about brothers and I found the examples so much easier to come up with for this show. And I wonder what that means. Is it because we're both women? Maybe. And all the way that we relate to stories about women is different to the way we relate to stories about men. I think also it's that classic thing with the division you have between writing about men and men's stories and writing about women and women's stories. Men's stories are about the outside world and women's stories are about the interior world. And that's a very crass, like simplistic division, but I still think it it, it applies. So like stories about brothers tend to be about like ideological splits. Like one brother represents heroism. One brother represents ideology. One brother represents like religiosity, like the brothers Karamazov, for example, whereas stories about sisters tend to be more about like the complex intersections of intimacies and like power but power in a very concentrated setting of the family or like I'm thinking of the more traditional stories to start with by for example Jane Austen like Sense and Sensibility or oh my god there's so many so many sisters in her books the best yeah there are yeah and like that kind of template where as a literary device for a writer like Austen it allows for a more nuanced and like diverse description or dissection of femininity, even though the stories are contained within the home and within like the women's world. So with the Bennett sisters, you have basically the template for sex in the city, like four women of different types. So you can explore like the serious woman, the intellectual woman, the jealous woman, the frivolous woman, whatever. And we see that rolled out again and again and again in stories about sisters. You have little women doing something very similar. There's something about like the need to explore lots of different forms of femininity, but also how much more difficult that is when you're writing about women's worlds because they don't have access to the outside world in that kind of historical setting. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And it's I, I think domesticity is a really important word there because, of course, that is that was traditionally the domain of the novel and is still a concern of the novel. It's like, how do we live our everyday lives in the home? And of course, that is the sphere that women so often have been restricted to. I also think, you know, when you talk about femininity and what is expected of women, novels about relationships are so often about emotional relationships. And of course, it's expected that that will be a kind of richer part of women's lives than than men's life. Like sister sisterhood in both a positive and negative way is about emotional ties, isn't it? Absolutely. But I think also it provides a really brilliant thing that can be inverted because we think of sisterhood as a, as a positive thing, don't we? But actually, you know, the idea of sisterhood can also be a bond that's forged in response to like terrible oppression and limitation. And that's very fertile and interesting too. And again, like the notion of brotherhood 
is something that is often thought of in relation to like big societal oppression like war, whereas the sisterhood that can be formed is often actually in response to the societal oppression of the home and of the domestic. And that's interesting. Yeah. And it made me think of The Color of Purple by Alice Walker as well, yeah. which is great show. so much about sisterhood and, and so much about how, how sisterhood exists within a, a deeply oppressive society the south and the u.s during the 1930s yeah and and those two sisters celia and Nettie, are bonded by blood as well as struggle because they're biological sisters as well as sisters in arms essentially aren't they and then the one that i can't stop thinking about which i have to admit i've never read the virgin suicides by jeffrey eugenides mm. which i think I've always understood, and if you've read this, please correct me if I'm wrong, but as being slightly uncomfortably like um, eroticizing the notion of sisterhood, right? Like maybe in a way that's very clever and reflexive, but... I've only seen the movie, which interestingly is directed by Sofia Coppola, isn't it? As I understand it, the novel itself is narrated by the men of the town about the sister. So it's very self-consciously about the kind of fetishization of sisters and kind of eroticizing that relationship, but also the the separateness of of sisterhood and these sisters who are kind of unavailable to people because of the close bonds that they share. It's worth thinking about in the context of looking in on sisterhood that that there is some kind of fascination with the March sisters or the sisters from Pride and Prejudice, because it is this incredibly tight knit world that we don't have access to. Right. It's locked in and it's it lo- the people who get locked out of it can be everyone from like potential suitors, the outside world, but also even the parents within the family. I think that's something that's interesting to explore. Um, and actually, there is a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale which explores that called The Twelve Princesses, where basically these 12 princesses secretly escape at night to go dancing and their dancing shoes are found worn out every morning, even though their father keeps them locked in the room. And it's this interesting exploration of like this this private female world that's mystical and quite uncanny. And the king who thinks he has ultimate power actually can't access this realm. And they are finding mystical ways to escape and be sisters mm. together, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you talk about uncanny because that leads me into another thing that I wanted to talk about that I mentioned at the top, which is the spookiness of sisters. That uncanniness of twins or even biological sisters can be used to very kind of spooky, scary ends. Totally. And if you think about it, the original spooky sisters well, maybe not the the original, original, but one of the originals <laughs> are the weird sisters in Macbeth, the three witches. Yeah. Um, and again, they represent this like this like fear and and uh, uncertainty about multiples of femininity that seem to exist without men, without the need for men. That they kind of fulfill the intimate bonds that they need with one another. And and okay, maybe they're not like sexually fulfilled, but maybe that becomes something that's not important. Um, and I think that like. The idea that that sisterhood, whether it's biological or not, can provide a homosocial ecosystem, but one that's not necessarily predicated on violence, like the masculine homosocial ecosystem tends to be, like brothers in war, you know, soldiers bonding together, but just that like 
there is something uncanny and kind of spooky about that that doesn't welcome the male gaze that actually kind of shuts it out hence maybe something like the virgin suicides but also i mean the other thing about this is maybe slightly a glib recommendation but the other thing about spooky sisters is obviously just straight up witches and i discovered doing the research (laughs) of the show that one of my favorite trashy movies practical magic is actually based on a book called practical magic by alice hoffman the movie is Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman playing sisters who are witches and it's completely great and awful. Um, but yeah, this book, the book, the book, the book. So it can be literary. <laughs> great. <laughs> no, I, th- I think that's a really good point. There's something scary about women outside of the world of men. But I also think it has to do with there's something scary about women who don't conform to the ideas of femininity. And maybe that's why it, it's so easy to create spooky, witchy, female characters in the same way that children are often used in horror stories, right? Because when they are violent or manipulative or strange, it's so much more shocking um, in the context of the world in which we live, isn't it? Yeah. And I think like that plus the uncanniness of of siblings in itself can can really be a potent bond. And we certainly saw that exploited in in Daisy Johnson's novel. Yeah, big time. Absolutely. So much left to say, but let's move on to our what what's your book that you would like to recommend about sisters? I'm going to recommend Atonement by Ian McEwan, which is such a devastating exploration of shifting power dynamics within families. And I remember being horrified by it when I read it when I was much younger. Um, It uses the relationship between Bryony and her older sister, Cecilia, to show how envy and like a shift in intimacy that's maybe barely perceptible to the characters, differing levels of maturity between sisters can play out within the relationship and then actually cause this like catastrophic changing in everyone's futures and the idea that the 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 book is kind of a reminder that no matter how close the sibling bond their subjectivities are different and their interpretation of the world is different and the idea that just because you shared an upbringing doesn't actually mean the story of your lives will be say the same and that you will agree on your interpretation of events um and how the different stories that two people within one family can tell about something can actually have hugely devastating consequences so interesting I thought clever way of looking at sisterhood yeah I love that novel I really love it yeah. and I think that's such a wonderful way to describe the novel itself oh thank um, you so yeah I, it was nice to hear you say that uh, yeah I second that recommendation I would just like to give another shout out to we have always lived in the castle by Shirley Jackson which we talked great about with book. Daisy it's a great book and I don't like scary things but I like scary things that are actually psychologically complex and I think that's something that Daisy's books do and I think that's something that we have always lived in the castle does and all Shirley Jackson's fiction does really she is the master of mood and this novel which features two sisters living in a big decaying house after a number of members of their family were poisoned at a dinner they were all at together by arsenic and the sugar which is just such a great setup amazing Um, it's delightfully creepy. They've become kind of outcasts because um, everyone in the town thinks that the older sister has has killed her family. And it, it explores sisterhood. It explores what we do for our sisters and takes them to kind of the darkest logical ends. It's wonderful in the, in the way that horror can do that, right? Yeah. Uh, highly recommended if you want something spooky to read for Halloween, although I hate Halloween. so You hate Halloween, but you like sweets. <laughs> I do love sweets. <laughs> but I'm an adult now, so I can eat them whenever I want, That's Octavia. That's true. <laughs> Don't have to wait for Halloween. 
I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Daisy Johnson to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to start. I uh, just finished this absolutely fantastic book that I'm really excited to recommend um, called A Man's Place by Annie Erno and translated by Tanya Leslie, which is published by Fitzcarraldo. And Carrie, you recommended Erno's book, The Years, and I'd not heard of her um, before that recommendation. And then um, the wonderful Claire at Fitzcarraldo sent me a copy of this book. And it is just, oh, I don't know. It was a glorious transporting read. It's it's not a particularly happy book, but it, it took me so fulsomely into this world. So it's, it's a short memoir that's a portrait of her father. And it's written incredibly sparingly. The style is really, really clean, but still gives this incredibly full picture of the man and of their family life, his marriage to Erno's mother, which was not a particularly happy one, but terribly functional. He never had it easy. He came from poverty. He was not a warm man. And it just depicts this really fascinating and difficult tension between the father and the daughter who he is trying to encourage to essentially cross a class barrier. So he wanted her to ascend the social order, to become educated in the way that he never had done. So she trains to be a teacher. And he dies exactly two months after she passes her teacher exams. And it's almost this kind of strange baton passing that now she's safely over the line, he can kind of leave. But the amazing thing about it is that it's this really powerful exercise in dispassionate observation. But I think that it also actually shows that to see a person clearly, especially if they're your parent, is is really an act of love. So it's clinical, but at the same time, when you finish it, you're left with this feeling of the respect and love that she had for him in quite a complicated way just to render him so clearly I don't know it really spoke to me possibly for personal reasons because my my father is ill but it it really the clarity of vision is something that I think every writer who writes about their own life would like to achieve and she's absolutely done it it's wonderful that sounds great. I've only read the years, but she's wonderful. And I love the way you describe her writing as so dispassionate, but that somehow being a way to access a, a deeper kind of intimacy. Yeah, with, exactly. With her as a writer and also that she was just doing autofiction way before people in the Anglo world were and like had figured it out already yeah. <laughs> way before we did. <laughs> or even yeah, gave it a name. Amazing. Yeah, she really is. I, I'm now absolutely desperate to read everything else by her. So that's a good sign, isn't it? <laughs> Very much so. Daisy, could we have your recommendation, please? Yeah, that's a good recommendation. I will definitely try and hunt that down. I haven't read any. Um, is it Annie Erno? Annie Erno, E-N-E-R-N-A-U-X, translated Brilliant. by Tanya Leslie. Really fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mine is also translator fiction. And um, I'm hoping I'm going to explain it right, because it's a brilliant book but I've been trying to think how to describe exactly what it's about, but it's Little Eyes by Samantha Schweblin. And she wrote Fever Dream, which is this really, really small book and really amazing. So I was really excited when I saw this and it's very different. It's sort of, so it's a kind of dystopian technological novel, I think about these small robot creatures who are in the shape of cute animals. So in the shape of pandas or rabbits And you, um, as a person, can go to the shop and you can buy one of these robots um, and sort of let it loose in your house. And it sort of moves around and it doesn't talk, but it will kind of follow you. Or on the other hand, you can, as a person, go online and choose to live inside one of these robots sort of through your camera so that you are watching 
you are watching the person who has brought the robot and you can't talk to them and you often don't really know who they are. And it's sort of this strange, very strange novel with lots of different parts about, I think, the way that we interact online. And it's quite dark at times, but also very funny, but really, yeah, really brilliant. And I think really good on something that a lot of people are trying to write about at the moment, which is kind of the way that we use technology and social media and how much of ourselves we put online and whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Yeah. That sounds phenomenal. And we had, I can't remember which author it was now. I think it may have been Valeria Luiselli recommended Samantha Schweblin's first book. And I remember thinking that sounded absolutely amazing as well. And I still haven't got, got around to reading her yet. But I mean, she sounds like such a fascinating writer. Yeah, she's really brilliant. And she's definitely one of those writers who you sort of, you, um, she's also, I think, got a collection of short stories, which I think is translated. And you sort of come to her books thinking that you know her because you've read her before. And actually, everything she writes is very, very different. And Fever Dreams is sort of this very strange, short novella where you never quite know what's real or what's not real, sort of narrated by a little boy, you think. Yeah, but she's really fantastic. I really recommend her. I clearly need to read Samantha Schwablin because everyone we interview loves her. <laughs> so that sounds amazing. Regular listeners of the show will know that our last literary friction show featured Anne Goldstein talking about her translation of Elena Ferrante's new novel, The Lying Life of Adults. And maybe this is not the most original recommendation, but I am going to recommend another book by Elena Ferrante today, also translated by Anne Goldstein. I guess also a translation, so three books in translation for our recommendations, which is good, called The Lost Daughter which was actually written in 2006 before the Neapolitan Quartet was published. It's a very slim novel, novella really, about one Italian woman's engagement with another brash family while she's on holiday. She kind of encounters them on the beach and then has a number of encounters with them. And this encounter with a family forces her to come to terms with her own relationship with her children who have moved to Canada to be with their father. I really loved reading this novella, even though I found the, I guess, psychological closeness and frankness of this woman's relationship with her children and the acts of cruelty that she she committed and some of the feelings that she had about being a mother very uncomfortable at times. It's not an easy novel to read, and it and it's kind of disturbing in a way that I think Ferrante's fiction can be. It is ultimately a novel about women's relationship with their children and one that kind of immediately disperses with any sentimental ideas about motherhood. Um, in that way, I think it's, it is it is in conversation with the kind of things that you're writing too, Daisy. It's, mm-hmm. it's not interested in any cliches about motherhood. And it features this character at the center who is both completely sympathetic, but also like frustratingly cruel but I just, I loved it and I loved, it felt kind of brave, which it shouldn't feel brave to write about women who are selfish and cruel, but it did. And I, I just really enjoyed it. So I'd recommend it. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Daisy Johnson, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram, and you can get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. 
We'll be back in a few weeks for a show with a literary friction favorite, Mary Gateskill. Yeah. We're so excited. <laughs> Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.